Isaiah chapter 11. And if you want to put a marker in Luke 4, we'll briefly read there, but Isaiah chapter 11 is where we're going to be mostly. Um, we'll pray in just a moment. I just want to let you know, whenever we, we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you should expect your mind to be stretched and to think deep about the deep things of God. So this is going to be one of those sermons where you're going to have to expect your brain to expand a little. Because when you talk about, when we talk about God becoming a man, initially you should think, whoa, how is that possible? So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm just letting you know ahead of time, mentally, if you need to do a couple of jumping jacks to get warmed up, um, we're going to look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ today. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we come to your word, we are so dependent upon your spirit, especially when we try to grasp what it means that your son took on human flesh, that he became a man. And it is mind-boggling and hard to get our minds around. So we ask for the spirit's help this morning. Father, we ask also that you would come today and save sinners because that's what you do best. There are people here that don't know you. They've never turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. Would you do that today, Father? Adopt them as your children. May they understand the gospel and be regenerated this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit as they hear the gospel. But for those of us who are your children, and we're clinging to Jesus, our Redeemer. Would you once again turn our eyes to him, to see him and to marvel at him and to be amazed and to be humbled by the fact that he would become a human being just like us, sin only accepted. Do that work in our hearts for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're taking a great uh, a break from our exposition in Galatians and we're beginning a Christmas Advent series that I've entitled Picture Jesus. We all have ideas in our mind of what we think Jesus is like. We all have pictures in our mind of what what and, and who he is like as the God man. So over the next 4 weeks I want to show you four pictures of Jesus from the photo album of the Bible, if you will. In fact, as I was meditating on it this morning, I thought we could maybe expand this series. So there's a possibility that we'll spill over into January looking at these pictures of Jesus. So over the at least the next four weeks, I hope to show you pictures of Jesus that cause your jaw to drop open and to humble you and to make you love him even more. We will do that, Lord willing, by looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. I'm indebted to Dr. Jeff Bingham and Dr. Bruce Ware and their thoughts and writings and sermons, etc., on Jesus Christ and his incarnation. Um, I said this, you may recall, earlier this year as we looked at our series on the Trinity. We looked at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, if you weren't a part of Grace then, or maybe you didn't hear those sermons, go on our website and delight in the deep things of the triune God. Go and listen 
and understand how the church throughout church history wrestled with the incarnation, wrestled with the fact that God became a human being. In that series, which is titled Deep Things, you heard me say that Jesus Christ is the God-man. You heard me say that he has two natures, one divine nature and one human nature, meaning he is 100% God. He is fully God, but at the same time, he is also 100% a man, a human being, fully human. You also heard me say in that series that it's not enough to just say that, that we can't just stop there. We can't just say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We can't just say that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. We must always say in the same breath and in the same sentence that Jesus is not only 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man, but that we must also say that those two natures, God and man, are united in one person. When we speak of Jesus Christ becoming a man, We must always say that those two natures are united in one person or we will be in danger of falling into some form of Christological heresy. We talked about that in our series in the Trinity. We looked at what happens when human beings don't include the phrase that those two natures are united in one person. This is where many people in church history went wrong. They weren't comfortable with the mystery of Jesus, the God-man. And so they tried their best to explain it all. And then they ended up getting themselves in some deep water. Namely, they were deemed heretics by the church. So you can find more information about these heretics and their beliefs about the incarnation by listening to our series online when we looked at the Trinity. In that series, we talked a lot about how Jesus was just like us as human beings. The only exception is that he was without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 says. Jesus was a human being just like me and just like you. He had hair. He had nose hair. He had armpits that would stink. He had a spleen. He had toenails. He would sleep and wake up with crust in the corners of his eyes. And he would wake up with drool on his beard. And he would wake up and his breath would stink just like yours does when you wake up. Don't think that because Jesus was God, that he was exempt from having bad breath in the morning. Don't think that because Jesus was God, then he must have woken up and his breath smelled like peppermints and candy canes. When Jesus woke up in the morning, he would have breath that could kill. Why? Because he was a human being just like you and just like me, sin only accepted. He was the God-man. He was the Word made flesh, as John says in John 1.14. And in John 1.14, when John says that Jesus is the Word made flesh, part of what John is saying is that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man with those two natures, God and man, united in one person. John is saying that Jesus is 
the God-man. Now, obviously, we can't fully comprehend what that means. We can't point to something in creation and say, oh, this is what Jesus is like. There is nothing in creation that you can point to and say, this is just like Jesus, the God-man, who is 100% God, 100% man, with those two natures united in one person. You can't do that. But what you can do is embrace the mystery of the incarnation and then study it and think deeply about it till your brain hurts and then be humbled by it. And that's what I want for us as a church this Christmas and Advent season. I want us to be humbled by our humble saviors taking on human flesh as we look at pictures of him in scripture. Here's our big idea today. Picture Jesus empowered by the Spirit. When you think of Jesus, when you have pictures of him in your mind, picture him empowered by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I hope you leave here today absolutely stunned at what Jesus did in the incarnation. I hope you leave here today absolutely awestruck and astonished and flabbergasted and overwhelmed at all that Jesus became when he took on human flesh. But you won't do that unless we look at God's word. So let's do that now. Isaiah chapter 11 Verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The reason we are looking at this passage today is because this passage focuses on Jesus' first coming and on his final coming. It is the first Sunday of Advent, so we are going to focus on Jesus' Advent, his coming, his first coming, and his final coming, because that's what Advent means. It means coming. So today, we're going to look at Jesus' first coming and also at his final coming. So when we think about and talk about the incarnation of the Son of God, when we say that the Word became flesh, we are saying that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, we are saying that he became a human being. We are saying that the eternal Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, who had no beginning and who has no end, We are also saying that he had a beginning in time and space in his humanity. In his divinity, Jesus as God had no beginning. As God, Jesus has always existed. But in his humanity, he was born into this world in space and time. Jesus was brought into being in this physical world through the power of the Holy Spirit as his eternal divine nature 
was miraculously joined together with a created human nature inside the womb of his mommy, whose name was Mary. You can read about it in Luke 1. Now, how in the world was this possible? How could the eternal Son of God, who had no beginning, how could he have a beginning as a human being? How could these two natures, the eternal God and man, God and man, God and baby, how could they coexist in one person? Could Jesus, as both God and man, simultaneously be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and also have a limited and finite human power, a limited and yet growing knowledge and wisdom, and be restricted to be only in one place at a time? Is this possible? Yes. As the God-man, Jesus is both simultaneously omnipotent, all-powerful, and yet limited in power. As the God-man, Jesus is both omniscient, knowing all things, and yet limited and growing in knowledge, which we'll look at in the next few weeks. We see him growing in knowledge as a young boy. How can this be possible? As the God-man, Jesus is omnipresent and everywhere And yet he is limited to and restricted to be only in one place at a given time in his physical body. Right about now, your brain should be going. That's what historic Christianity teaches. But how? How can Jesus be all of these things at one time? How can Jesus be God and man at the same time? It is a mystery. You have to embrace that truth. It is a mystery that we will never fully understand. But let me ask you another question. How did Jesus live his life of obedience, resisting temptation and carrying out perfectly the will of his Father? How did Jesus live his life of obedience? How did he resist temptation? How did he live out perfectly the will of his Father? Most of us would be tempted to answer that it was because Jesus was God and that out of his own divine nature, he was able to overcome temptation and obey his father. We may be tempted to think that some of his divine nature spilled over into his human part, and that's how he did what he did. Kind of like shake him a little bit, and, and the God part of him will then empower the human part. Is this the answer? Is the answer then that Jesus did what he did out of the power of his own divine nature? That would be the typical evangelical answer. The typical evangelical answer is that the God part of Jesus spilled over and supplied the human part of Jesus with the power to live as a human being. Or in other words, you could say it like this. At some point, his godness kicked in. The divine part kicked in. He's a human living, and, and, and when he needs that extra boost, then his divine nature kind of kicks in and enables him to do what he does. That's what we typically believe. But let me ask another question. If Jesus was perfectly obedient out of his own divine nature, if Jesus was perfectly obedient because he was perfectly God, then how can the biblical authors call us to follow in his steps? As 1 Peter 2.21 says. Peter says in his epistle, he left you an example Following his steps, he committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. How can I do that, Peter? How can I not sin? 
How can I not have deceit in my mouth? I don't have a divine nature like Jesus. Or the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 6, walk in the same way that he walked. Well, how can I walk in the same way that Jesus walked? Because I'm not God and I don't have a divine nature. How can we be called to live as Jesus lived if he lived out of the power of his own divine nature, if his own divine nature kicked in and enabled him to live? None of us have a divine nature. None of us are God. So how can we be expected to walk as he walked? Let me ask one more question and then I'll answer these questions in the sermon. Is it possible that the humanity of Jesus has more to do with how he lived his life day by day? Is it possible that the emphasis in scripture on Jesus' day-to-day life is on his humanity and not his divinity? Our instinct is to stress the divinity of Jesus, that he was God when we talk about the incarnation and when we talk about his day-to-day activities. But scripture actually puts the emphasis on his humanity, that he was a human being just like you and me. Scripture tells us that Jesus came as the second Adam, Romans 5. How many of you believe that Adam was a human being? Anybody? Jesus, I hope you all do. Jesus came as the second Adam, and Adam was a human, so Jesus had to be a human. We saw in Galatians 3 that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He can trace his lineage back to Abraham. He's the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah, and he lived his life as one of us. Scripture tells us that Jesus was the God-man, but that he also lived his life as one indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10.38, it says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Scripture clearly paints the picture of Jesus as being the Spirit-anointed, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-enabled Messiah. This is who the Old Testament prophets spoke of. In his divinity, in his godness, as God. As God, did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? No. Could the Spirit of God actually contribute anything to the deity of Christ? Could the Spirit of God give any more of God to Jesus, who is God's Son? No. As God, Jesus possesses all of God's nature. Nothing can be added to him in his godness, in his divine nature. But as far as his humanity is concerned, flesh and blood and bone and tissue and spleen and armpits and eyes and ears, etc., could the Holy Spirit contribute anything to Jesus? Could the Holy Spirit contribute something to Jesus' humanity? Yes. What did the Spirit of God then contribute to the humanity of Jesus? Everything. Everything of supernatural power and enablement that Jesus lacked in his humanity as a man, as a human being, the Spirit of God supplied. That's what Isaiah is saying in chapter 11, verse 2. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit to live his life as a human being. 
Jesus relied on the Spirit of God to provide the power, grace, knowledge, wisdom, direction, and enablement that he needed moment by moment, day by day, so that he could fulfill the mission of his Father. And when you begin to understand this, then you will picture Jesus empowered by the Spirit. If you have your place there in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, Jesus reads another portion of Isaiah in the synagogue describing how the Holy Spirit empowered him for his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, think about it. Of all the places that Jesus could have turned in the Old Testament to say, this is talking about me right here, he turns to a portion of Isaiah's prophecy that talks about the Spirit of God enabling him in his humanity to complete the mission that his father had given him. He could have turned anywhere in the Bible. He could have gone to Genesis 1 and said, God said, let there be light. That was me. But he goes to a place because he wants to highlight that what he does as a human being, as the God-man in his humanity, is because he is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. This text and many others like it show us that all of Jesus' ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of Jesus' life was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did, he did in total dependence upon the Holy Spirit. He fully obeyed the law. He was without sin. He was perfect because he was empowered by the Spirit. He resisted temptation because he was empowered by the Spirit. He performed numerous miracles because he was empowered by the Spirit. He endured the cross because he was empowered by the Spirit. And he was raised from the dead, as Romans 8.11 says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. All of Jesus' earthly life All of his first advent, all of his first coming as a human being, all of his ministry in his first coming as a human being, and his resurrection as a human being, all of it was because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So his first coming, his first advent happens because he is the spirit-anointed, spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered Messiah. All of his first coming, first advent, is because of the power of the Spirit. But the Spirit's work in Jesus' life doesn't end there. Jesus is also empowered by the Holy Spirit for his final coming. It isn't like the Spirit raises Jesus from the power of the dead and he says, thank you, that was great, I really needed your help. I'm done now because I'm back from the dead. No, Jesus is dependent upon the power of the Spirit for his second coming too, even though he's the resurrected, glorified Son of God. Look at Isaiah 
chapter 11 again, verses 1 through 3 talk about his first coming. The following words talk about how the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus for his final coming. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's his first coming, his first advent. Now Isaiah is gonna switch gears and talk about his second coming, his second advent. He says this, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Let me ask you another question. When did Jesus in his first coming vindicate the poor and bring justice to the meek? When In his first coming, did he strike the earth with the rod of his mouth? When, in his first coming, did he slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth? He did not do this in his first coming. He will fulfill this part of Isaiah 11 when he returns. And this is the picture we see in Revelation 19 of him coming on a white horse with a sword that comes out of his mouth to make war on his enemies. Therefore, Isaiah's prophecy that foretold the Holy Spirit empowering the Messiah for earthly ministry also speaks of the Spirit empowering Jesus the Messiah for his return. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus for his first advent, for his first coming, but the Spirit will also empower Jesus for his final advent, his final coming. Isaiah is telling us that when Jesus returns to the earth. He will vindicate the poor. He will bring justice to the meek and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth and he will do it all because he is empowered by the spirit of the Lord. We should pause here since we're talking about him coming back to slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. He's coming back to make war on his enemies. Now we are all, as human beings, born his enemies. We're born rebels. We deserve eternal punishment because we could never pay for rebelling against the holy God. But he loves you. If you're here today and you've not turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, will you do that today so that you can escape the day when he comes to slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. His first coming is all about offering amnesty to people like you and people like me. Will you turn and believe? If you don't, even though you die today, there's coming a day when you will see him on a horse with a sword in his mouth and he will slay the wicked on that day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the the day to turn and trust in Jesus and be adopted into his family where he will delight in you and rejoice over you with singing. But there is coming a day when he will come and he comes with breath that kills. And what he will do in his final advent, his final coming, he will do it all because he is empowered by the spirit of God.
to understand this grace. The Holy Spirit continues to reside upon the crucified and risen Jesus in order to empower him to continue to accomplish God the Father's plan, which is to bring in his people around his throne forever on the new heavens and the new earth. Think about that. The Holy Spirit continues to reside upon the crucified, risen Jesus in order to empower him to continue to accomplish the Father's plan. Jesus will return to the earth one day to strike down the wicked and he will accomplish it because he is empowered by the spirit because the spirit of God rests on him. Jesus will return one day and with one breath he will slay the wicked and he will do it not because his breath stinks but precisely because he is empowered by the spirit of God to fulfill his father's mission. That's what Isaiah 11 is saying. And when we read Isaiah 11, we should picture Jesus empowered by the Spirit. When you think about Jesus coming as a man, think about him being empowered by the Spirit. He became one of us. He lived life as one of us. He had eyes and ears and taste buds eardrums, spleen, spine, hips, shins. He accepted the limitations of his humanity and relied upon the guidance that God the Father would give him and he relied on the power that the Holy Spirit would provide him to live day by day in perfect obedience to his Father. As the second Adam, Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey the law for us. Dr. Bruce Ware says, one must come to terms with the significance of the repeated biblical teaching that Jesus, the Messiah sent from God, would be marked by having the Spirit upon him. But why would he need the Spirit since he possessed already the infinitely full and complete divine nature? What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? He can add nothing since the deity of Christ is infinitely full and perfect. But what can the Spirit of God add to the humanity of Christ? He can add everything of supernatural enablement. Yes, Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Messiah, lived his life as a man, accepting the limitations of his human existence and relied on the Spirit to do in and through him what he could not do in his human nature. His identity then, as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, is fundamentally that of a man empowered by the Spirit to carry out what he was called upon to do. Jesus did what he did for those whom he would redeem because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is how you must picture Jesus in his first coming. And this is how you must picture Jesus in his second coming. And this is how you must picture Jesus for eternity. What are the applications for us? One, Jesus is the one we look to in order to grow spiritually. Be amazed, Grace. All of the resources that Jesus had at his disposal, we have at ours. He relied on the word of God, and we have that same word, do we not? 
He relied on prayer, and we too have access to God's presence. He relied on the Holy Spirit to empower him to do all that he came to do. And Christians, we too have the same spirit. Be amazed at that. Everything that Jesus had to do, all that he did, we have access to it. It's ours. Think about that. Now, you've heard me say in our series in Galatians, reading your Bible doesn't get you favor with God. God doesn't love you more because you read your Bible. God doesn't love you more because you pray. But now hear me say, you need to read your Bible. You need to pray, not to get God's favor, but to get God's power. You will never grow as a Christian, as a disciple, if you are not reading the word of God. You will never grow as a Christian, as a disciple, if you never seek the Lord in prayer. Everything that Jesus had, we have. Because we have the Spirit. You have everything that you need to live the Christian life. Have you turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus? The moment you do that, you get the Holy Spirit. You have everything that you need. You need no other experience. You need nothing because you have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. You need nothing else because you have everything that you need. We can live our lives with everything that Jesus had because we have the Spirit. Isn't that what Emmanuel means? God with us. The promises over and over throughout Scripture, God keeps telling his people because we're so prone to forget it. I will be with you. I will be with you. We have everything we need because God is with us. Second application. Be humbled by the humility of Jesus. In his divine nature as God, he lacked nothing. He had all wisdom and power and knowledge, and yet he humbled himself by becoming a human being. And by doing that, he humbled himself and accepted our life as human beings as his life. He accepted the role of living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Rather than living out of his own divine nature as God, rather than getting in a situation and thinking, oh, what am I going to do? I'm tired. I've been ministering all day. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll just rely on my own divine nature to kick in. And then whatever he does, he gets the power. No, he lives in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Rather than living out of his own divine nature as God, he became a man and accepted a role of dependence on the Holy Spirit. He's God. He needs nothing. But in his humanity, he humbles himself and says, I am dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And this is why he prayed so much. This is why you see Jesus in Scripture sneaking off places to pray because he needed the Spirit. Marvel at him today, Grace. Marvel at him. What amazing humility he showed. He was fully God, needing nothing, and yet he accepted living life as a man, as a human being, dependent upon the Holy Spirit every day, every moment of his life. What amazing humility It should cause us to humble ourselves and to think about not only do we need the Spirit, of course, but then when you expand that a little bit and you think about where does the Spirit of God reside? Yes, he he resides in us individually, 
But the temple of God, the body of Christ, is where the Spirit of God is. And how many of us today have a low view of the church? I don't need the church. What do I need the church for? I have my Bible, I have Jesus, I'm good. So so many people think today, you need the church. This is where the Spirit of God is in the body of Christ. You need church community. Oh, Grace, please don't be those people who just come in to hear some good music, to hear some subpar preaching, and then leave, and you're not connected to anyone. Don't be one of those Christians. Because listen, if you're coming here, the music, you can probably get better music on the radio. I love our music, but at least it'll be perfectly mixed and mastered, and it's perfect. The only thing you have to adjust is the volume, maybe the bass and treble on your speakers. You can get way better preaching online, trust me. Way better preachers out there that you can listen to their podcasts. If you're coming here for those two things, there's better stuff out there. Come here for those things, but come here because this is where the Spirit of God is. This is the church community. This is where you will find pastors and elders who will shepherd you. Pastors who will shepherd you and teach you God's word and counsel you. Elders who will watch over you, who will watch over the flock, and we will be voting on them next Sunday night. This is the place where you come to be a part of the family of God. Humble yourself and say, I need the church. Third application. Here's the part that's going to blow your mind and I hope it humbles you. I hope you realize the length that Jesus went to in order to redeem his elect people. Get this, Grace. When Jesus took on our human nature and accepted his role as being dependent upon the Spirit, it wasn't just for his earthly ministry and it wasn't just for his future return. By becoming a man, by becoming a human being, with eyes, ears, spleen, toes, by becoming a man, by becoming a human being, Jesus accepted his role as being dependent on the Holy Spirit forever. To make your mind blow. Since Jesus will always be the God-man, always be in a human body forever as he is now. Since Jesus will always be the God-man and since he will always in his person have his human nature joined and united to his divine nature, then Jesus will always need the Holy Spirit to empower him in his humanity for all that he will do as our redeemer. When Jesus became a human being, he became forever dependent on the Spirit of God. How amazing it is to think that the eternal Son of God, who has always existed and who never needed anything, was willing to go to this extent to obey his Father by living and dying for his elect people and by becoming a man who as a man, as a human being, the God-man, will forever be dependent on the Holy Spirit. He will forever be empowered in his humanity by the Holy Spirit. What amazing humility. And he did that for you, Christian. What love, what humility, what condescension when he became a human. 
Jesus accepted the limitations of humanity forever. Jesus' humanity is not a parenthesis like, I became a human being, wasn't a human being, became a human being, and now he's not. Jesus will forever be a human being, just like you. You can compare fingers to him on the new earth and say, your hand's bigger than mine. He will always be a human being. Therefore, he will be limited in his humanity. That means that Jesus physically can only be in one place at any given time. But yet, he's omnipresent and can be everywhere as well. He took on human flesh. He is a human being now. He is the God man. He has fingernails now. He has toenails now. He has a spleen now. He has armpits now. Do his armpits stink now? I don't know. He now has a resurrected, glorified body. So I don't know if resurrected, glorified armpits stink or not. I don't know. I don't know if Jesus' breath is minty fresh now. I don't know if we'll have bad breath on the new earth. Perhaps the leaves that are for the healing of the nations in Revelation 22 are mint leaves that we can chew on and it will heal our bad breath forever. I don't know. There's lots of questions. Lots of questions when you think and ponder and study the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I don't know the answer to all these questions. But I do know that Jesus humbled himself greatly in order to save a wretch like me. And he did that because he was empowered by the Spirit of God. When you picture Jesus, picture him empowered by the Spirit. Picture Jesus empowered by the Spirit of God in his first coming, in his final coming, and forever. What amazing humility. May we all be humbled by him today and the links that he went to in order to save a bunch of wretches like us. He gave us his spirit. And because of his life, death, and resurrection, we can all sing today, it is well with my soul. And it is well with our bodies because they're going to be made new and we're going to see him and we're going to be just like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Your son, I have so many questions. My mind is stretched, Father, trying to figure it all out. And may I not turn the incarnation into some mathematical equation. I pray that we would be a church that talks about it. Today at lunch, thinks about it, prays about it, reads about it. So that we would be led to worship. So that we would be humbled that your son would take on humanity to save us. Help us today, God, to marvel at him, to be astonished at what he has done. Help us to worship him. In his name we pray, amen.